Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Hello everyone, welcome to a History of the World podcast magazine uh, in which we look back on previous episodes and some of the more interesting content from those episodes and what we tend to do is look back at what we were doing on this date in previous years in the podcast history. Now the podcast is now in its sixth year so we have, uh, we effectively have five previous years that of, of information that we can uh, look back on and we're going to take uh, some information from four of those previous five years so we're we're initially going to go back to 2018 then 2019 then 2020 and then 2021 so without further ado let's uh, dis- let's go back and look at what the history of the world podcast was talking about back in 2018 and on this date in 2018 we were discussing Homo erectus which is an archaic type of human being that was uh, alive before Homo sapiens us evolved so one of our ancestors if you like Homo erectus now there was quite a lot of excitement in the world maybe around a hundred years ago give or take around the the uh, um, the discovery of human ancestors it was a it was a very um energetic and i would say new science and uh, one of those uh people who was heavily involved in it was a man called eugene dubois and we spoke of him and he's rather um let's say um more intro well i don't know if introvert is the right word he's very much um yeah he's very much a man of his own principles and uh and he wanted to convince the world that he was the main man when it come to uh paleoanthropology uh paleoanthropology uh to the point where he would uh prevent others from even questioning his work and he 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 was quite the sulker and uh, let's uh, go back four years ago and talk about his story. Eugène Dubois To begin the story of Homo erectus I would like to introduce you to one of my favourite characters in the story of paleoanthropology, Mr 
Eugène Dubois. Eugène Dubois was born in a village called Aisden in the Duchy of Limburg in the Netherlands in the year 1858. From a young age, Dubois was fascinated by Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Dubois was clearly a young man of academic talent, but also with an obstinate will of his own, which comes down to us in his reflected legacy to this day. Dubois was absolutely engrossed by the concept of there being a missing link between monkeys and humans, and he possessed a life-consuming desire to find the answer to the unsolved mystery of the missing link. So where on planet Earth would a 19th century anatomist go to find the missing link? Well, a theory did exist that the place to go was Southern Asia. It was even hypothesised at the time that there could have been a sunken continent once rising above the sea that was the land bridge from India to Madagascar in the west and stretching across the Indian Ocean to Australia in the east. A mysterious continent called Lemuria. To be honest, this is complete rubbish. No such continent existed and not everybody could agree on exactly what it was anyway. All Dubai knew is that the mainstream theory was that the missing link was to be found somewhere in Asia and Dubois was going there to find the missing link regardless of what anyone thought. Where others had failed, Dubois was determined to succeed. In 1887, he joined the Dutch army specifically to be posted to the Dutch East Indies, modern Indonesia, in search of his prize. The Dutch East Indies were already home to large numbers of Gibbon and the orangutan. He would start his search among the rivers and caves of the island of Sumatra before moving onto the neighbouring island of Java. Java Man It was while near Trinil in East Java during the year 1891 that Dubois and his team discovered a particularly interesting skullcap. One of the notable aspects of the skullcap was the heavy brow bridge and a sagittal keel. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because we've mentioned a sagittal crest before when discussing the robust Australopithecines called the Paranthropines in the two previous podcasts. The sagittal crest of the Paranthropines was a prominent crest that ran from the front to the back of the top of the skull. The difference here is that it is a sagittal keel, and this is a raised ridge from the front to the back, which is not completely absent from modern humans, so just a ridge. Initially, Dubois named this creature Anthropopithecus, as the skull was accompanied by a tooth similar to one found in India over 10 years previous. Dubois believed this to be too ape-like to be passed off as the missing link and therefore continued his search. Further searching revealed a fossilised thigh bone of an upright individual. Dubois determined that this belonged to the same individual as the skull cap and the tooth, and upon measurement of the cranial volume at 900 cubic centimetres, he determined that this upright walking individual with a brain capacity midway between modern humans and modern apes was now actually the missing link, 
that the world had been looking for. He renamed his fossil Pithecanthropus erectus. Pithecanthropus is similar to Anthropopithecus in that it is the same two elements, Pithecus meaning ape and Anthropus meaning human. The former name, Anthropopithecus, meaning human ape, and the revised Pithecanthropus, meaning ape man. Pithecanthropus was also used uh, as the name of the undiscovered missing link. So the missing link was always Pithecanthropus in theory. Now Dubois decided that it was time to use it, and he championed himself as the man to solve the mystery. Dubois had found the missing link. Contemporary reaction. Eugène Dubois had cracked the code. He had solved the mystery of the missing link and in 1895 he returned back to Europe to promote his wonderful discovery and take his place at the forefront of the paleoanthropological world as the man who found the answer to the riddle. The reaction he received from the scientific world upon his return was not quite as expected though. Some scientists thought that the fossil was too much like an ape to be the missing link. Others thought that it was too much like a human to be the missing link. There were even some who doubted Dubois' integrity by questioning whether the three bones were even related to each other at all. This is not what Dubois expected. As far as he was concerned, he had solved the puzzle and if anyone didn't believe him, then he would tell them again until they did. Ultimately though, scientists will only believe what they believe regardless of all these vain attempts to convince them otherwise. And by 1900, Dubois took the fossils and locked them away. Nobody was allowed to study them at all until they were accepted for what Dubois wanted them to be accepted for. Peking Man It was the 1920s before things were reawakened on the Asian front when it came to paleoanthropological discoveries. A team of geologists and paleontologists arrived at a fossil-rich site in Zhou Godian in the Republic of China. It was in 1928 that a lower jaw alongside several teeth and skull fragments were discovered and presented to the world. This excited the sponsorship of more archaeological expeditions and there soon became a further number of skulls and numerous other bones excavated from the Jogodian site right up until 1937 when warfare broke out between China and its neighbour Japan. So it was good news potentially for Eugène Dubois, who had spent the last few decades sulking about not being able to convince people about what he wanted them to believe about his Java man. These new fossils strongly resembled Dubois' beloved Java man and would surely serve to prove the scientific world after all these years that he was right all along. When Dubois got his opportunity to speak, He completely dismissed all of the Peking man fossils as being too human. It didn't matter to Dubois that they could validate his Java man. After all, they were not his Java man. In fact, the truth is that nothing at all would have ever been Dubois' Java man. In Dubois' mind, 
He and only he could possibly be the one who could take any credit for the discovery of the missing link. Nobody else mattered, not their opinions, not their fossils, nothing. Eugène Dubois died at the age of 82 in the year 1940. Right up until the end, he was just as stubborn as ever. The Scottish anthropologist Sir Arthur Keith wrote a eulogy for Eugène Dubois. In this eulogy, he says that Eugène Dubois was an idealist, his ideas being so firmly held that his mind tended to bend facts rather than alter his ideas to fit them. In 1950, both Eugène Dubois' Java Man and the Peking Man of Zhou Gaudian, China, were both categorised as Homo erectus. What a crazy character. Um, anyway, moving on, uh, we're going to go uh, forward now to what we were talking about four years ago in 2019. And um, the subject of our podcast was the Mycenaean Greeks. And the Mycenaeans uh, were, they, they were previous to the classical Greek cultures, the Athenians, the Spartans. So this is going back before um, the stories of Homer and uh, the Trojan Wars, really, that period of time where the first uh, known societies of the Greek mainland emerged. But, of course, the first societies of Europe that we talk of, uh, the first known um, historical societies were the Minoans on the Greek island of Crete. And I was always quite fascinated by the relationship that the Mycenaeans on mainland Greece had with the Minoans of Crete. And we explored that four years ago. So in order to establish how far Mycenaean culture and influence spread, we can look for evidence of the Tholos tombs mentioned, or we can look for evidence of Linear B scripts, or we can look for Mycenaean ceramics, although the ceramics are more likely to tell us more about the trade extents of the Mycenaeans. Mycenaean pottery has been found all over the place. It was beautifully created and decorated colourfully with stylish shapes and handles, and would have also been used for the presentation of goods such as perfumed oils, which would have been contained within. So they would have been pleasurable objects to own, and possibly the envy of your peers, should you own one. These pots had been recovered on the Italian peninsula and the islands of Sicily and Malta. They have also been discovered along the west-facing coast of Anatolia, as well as Cyprus, the Levantine coast and Egypt. Imports included gold and amber from the north, copper and tin from the west, lapis lazuli and glass from the east, and amethyst and ivory from the south. The Mycenaeans were very much in the thick of the Mediterranean and Near East trade network, and they would have discovered much of the trade links thanks to the success of the Minoans who they had come into close contact with. However, the presence of fortifications around Mycenaean settlements 
could have pointed towards a fear of attack, possibly even from the outwardly mobile Minoans themselves. The lack of significant fortifications around Minoan settlements in comparison to the Mycenaeans demonstrates that the Minoans were the dominant culture of the Aegean surroundings. However, the dynamics of this relationship would change at some point around the year 1500 BCE. If we go back to last week's episode, we discussed the volcanic eruption of Thera sometime around or after the year 1600 BCE. Exactly what the impact of this catastrophic event was is a little unclear, but certainly the Minoans would have been the primary candidate to have felt the effects. The Minoan settlement on the island of Thera was completely destroyed. Tsunamis are likely to have hit the north coast of Crete, and although the palace site of Knossos is relatively inland, should they have had a naval fleet on that coast, it would have certainly have been destroyed. One thing that does seem to have happened in the aftermath of the eruption is that the Mycenaeans identified an opportunity to take advantage of the weakened state of the Minoans. Now, there is very little in the written record to indicate the sequence of events, so we have to take those good old-fashioned wild guesses based on the evidence that we do have, and if we're bold enough as individuals, we stick our necks out and have an educated guess. The Minoans would have undoubtedly have felt some notable impact from the volcanic eruption, and it does seem that the speculated dates of things point suspiciously towards the eruption being something that tipped the balance of power towards the already strengthening Mycenaeans. If the Minoans were exhausting all of their energies in recovering their losses, especially if they lost a lot of the naval resources which they would have relied upon to uphold their considerable trade network, then it would make sense that the Mycenaeans were best positioned to step in. So it therefore appears that the Mycenaeans took control of the Minoan palace sites and it may have been done aggressively. The Minoans seem to be helpless to resist the Mycenaeans. Some of the sites such as Malia and Zacros were destroyed by fire, although we can only assume that this was the work of the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans did choose to keep and occupy the palace of Knossos, however. It may have been after this that the Mycenaeans created their own fortified palace city sites on mainland Greece, using the Minoan palace sites as a template. Unfortunately, after the terrorism and subjugation of Crete, it does appear that the amazing artistic flair of Greece and the Aegean was dampened down. Greek lands after 1400 BCE became more practical and there was no longer the time to spend on high quality artisanry. We can determine from the deciphered Linear B tablets that the Mycenaean societies would have been typically ruled by a Wanax. Military leaders and lesser lords would have served under the Wanax. The nature of society had changed and prosperity and imperial ambitions would become 
paramount to the Mycenaeans. The best artisans of Minoan society were now the property of the Mycenaeans. Not only would the Mycenaeans gain control of Crete, but they would also take control of any Minoan outposts that existed on the Aegean islands, including the Cyclades and the Dodecanese. They would also take control of various outposts on the western coast of Anatolia, whether by raid or by trade. The lands of western Anatolia are extremely intriguing. Between 1450 and 1200 BCE, it is a hotbed of mystery as historians try to decode the evidence available to finalise a sequence of events. As we have already discovered back in episode 5, the Hittites were the powerhouse of Anatolia. So any activity on the western coastlines would have captured their attention. We mentioned during that episode that Hittite scripts revealed societies related to that geographical region situated to the west of Hittite heartlands. We spoke of the Ashua, who were the confederation of city-states in western Anatolia around the year 1400 BCE. It has been suggested that the Ashua could be related to the modern word Asia, as the Greeks may have known them by the same name and called their Anatolian lands the lands of the Ashua. The Hittites claim to have conquered these peoples before acknowledging the emergence of a peoples called the Arzawa, mentioned in both Hittite texts and Armana texts of the New Kingdom of Egypt, so this would have been around 1350 BCE. However, after this the Hittites began to mention a people called the Ahiyawa, and it is not out of the question that the Ahiyawa are the Mycenaeans. The Arzawa appeared to be physically and politically sandwiched between the Hittites and the Ahiyawa, so everything points towards this being a real possibility. A very important city that seems to be a central one to this story is the city that the Hittites called Milawanda, and what we believe must have referred to Miletus, which sits near the mouth of the Meander River on the western coast of Anatolia, and of course modern-day Turkey. Miletus demonstrates Mycenaean occupation through archaeological evidence. Hittite documents state that the Ahiyawa were in control of Milawanda, which could be interpreted to mean that the Mycenaeans were in control of Miletus. The Hittites claim that the Ahiyawa assisted the Arzawa against the Hittites. An archaeological layer of destruction at Miletus might represent a Hittite repercussion for the Mycenaeans there. A lot of ifs, buts and maybes, but impossible to disregard as a theory. We are confident that Mycenaeans settled the western Anatolian coast thanks to archaeological evidence. We don't need to rely on the Hittite texts to confirm this. Archaeological finds can also confirm that the Greeks expanded out of their Peloponnesian lands on mainland Greece too. We can see archaeological evidence of Mycenaean occupation 
in what would become the highly influential classical Greek city of Sparta, which is on the Peloponnese. However, we can also see Mycenaean remains at Chalcis, on the large island of Euboea, and at what would become Thebes, not to be confused with the Thebes in Egypt, of course. The Greek city of Thebes is in the mainland region of Boeotia. I will, of course, publish a map. So it would also make sense that the Mycenaeans occupied what would become Athens, and interestingly, the modern-day site of the Acropolis. Anyone that knows Athens will know of the Acropolis. It is the ancient citadel where the Athenians built the Parthenon around a thousand years after the time period that we are exploring here. However, the Mycenaeans also used this Acropolis too, and they would have built a palace there because the Mycenaeans had taken the skill of palace construction from those expert Minoans who had built such impressive palaces on Crete. Now, of course, all of that ended up being uh, the backstory behind what would come later and something that historians have been very excited about uh, when talking about history. Uh, And that is the period of ancient Greece. But of course, ancient Greece also excited um, the, the cultures of ancient Rome. And when uh, the Romans started expanding, then uh, the, the main threat uh, was to the Carthaginians, who were Phoenicians who had settled on the North African coast and established the city of Carthage. And uh, one of the most famous stories uh, about the conflicts between Carthage and the Romans was when the Carthaginian general Hannibal marched across the Alps with his huge army and his 37 elephants. Let's hear about that story now. We were talking about it three years ago back in 2020. Command of the Carthaginian army in Iberia passed to Hasdrubal's brother-in-law, the son of Hamilcar Barca, and his name was Hannibal. Hannibal's story is one of the more famous stories of an individual during the Roman era. His story begins where we left off last week, with the Iberian city of Saguntum. Saguntum was a considerable distance south of the Ebro River, which was determined to be the agreed limit of Carthaginian influence. Saguntum was a Celt-Iberian city that didn't fully appreciate the Carthaginians being involved in their affairs, and they may have turned to Rome to protect their wealth. The Romans responded to Saguntum, and Hannibal Barca was far from impressed. Saguntum was almost a hundred miles south of the Ebro River, and was therefore fair game. So Hannibal decided to besiege Saguntum, in response during the second half of 219 BCE. The Romans were not in a good position to interfere in this siege directly, so they sent ambassadors to Carthage, and the ambassadors were entertained, 
and then sent back to Rome again with a defiant Carthaginian message. Saguntum fell to the Carthaginians after a few months and a brutal battle and the snub of the Roman ambassadors led to the Romans demanding Hannibal himself be surrendered to the Romans and the Carthaginians refused, sparking the beginning of the Second Punic War. Hannibal Barker Hannibal would set about gathering an army. The size of the army is argued, and I have seen numbers from 40,000 to 100,000 offered. Strangely, when investigating the number of elephants in Hannibal's army, we seem to always hit the specific number of 37 from most sources. The makeup of the Carthaginian army is also interesting. Libyan foot soldiers are mentioned, and when we look at the Libyans, they may have been a mixture of local Berbers and Greek immigrants to North Africa, as it was in the Libyan lands that the Greek colony of Cyrene was established. Also among the Carthaginian army were Numidian horsemen. The Numidians were the Berbers who lived on the North African coast of the modern-day country of Algeria, and as such, they had developed strong diplomatic ties with their Carthaginian neighbours. There would have almost certainly been a good deal of Celtiberian mercenaries wanting to be on the winning side and believing that this would be Hannibal's Carthaginians. Despite the problem from the Carthaginian perspective being Roman interference in politics south of the river Ebro, Hannibal would lead his Carthaginian army of tens of thousands north over the river Ebro and into forbidden lands on their way toward the modern lands of Italy. The route would require the Carthaginians to negotiate the Pyrenees Mountains, the lands of the Gauls and the Alps Mountains. Crossing the Alps would have been seemingly impossible with it being such a severe range of mountains. The legend of Hannibal crossing the Alps is the lasting legacy of this episode in history, but in reality it was only part of this whole journey of attrition which was made in haste before the Romans could attack first. Not everybody survived the journey. Significant losses affected the Carthaginian force as they initially crossed the Pyrenees and arrived in the lands of the south of the modern-day country of France. So the famous story is of Hannibal crossing the Alps, but this is just one part of an extremely arduous journey from the Iberian lands south of the Ebro to the imperial lands of the Roman Republic. At every juncture, whether it be the lands around the Pyrenees or the Gallic lands of southern France, Hannibal's army would face attack from local tribes and so Hannibal would spend significant time reshaping his army, even sending some units back to Carthaginian Iberia. 
It wasn't all against Hannibal though as there would have been a fair share of tribes who were happy to support Hannibal's campaign, especially if they felt no loyalty to the Romans. So Hannibal would have not had much idea as to whether the next society of people that he encountered would have been friend or foe. The next geographical obstacle that Hannibal would have needed to negotiate would have been the Rhone River. There, Hannibal would encounter Celtic tribes supportive of the Romans near the coastal Greek colony city of Massalia, which is the modern French city of Marseille. The Celts were more specifically the Volci, who were a Gallic entity who had been involved in Greek affairs earlier in the century and were now being commissioned by the Romans to prevent the progress of Hannibal. The Rhone River was a considerable crossing and with the Volci actively trying to prevent the crossing, it raises the question, what about the famous elephants? Did Hannibal have to find a way to transport the elephants over the river or were the elephants transported to the eastern side of the Rhone by sea? Livy says that some of the elephants fell into the Rhone and had to swim to safety. Either way, Hannibal was victorious over the Volci at the Battle of the Rhone crossing, showing a canny tactical approach that outwitted his opponents. With the Rhone River behind him, Hannibal pressed onwards towards the Alps. Already Hannibal had lost a large amount of his army, but somehow during this hard journey, which was only going to get harder, Hannibal managed to keep the remainder of his army motivated to continue. Hannibal's Alpine route is fiercely debated, but we know that the Alps had to be navigated across. The journey through the Alps is something that has become mythologised, capturing the imagination of many artists who've created dramatic depictions of armies accompanied by elephants attempting to march along improbable mountain passes perilously close to a deadly fall over the edge. In reality, this crossing would have been treacherous to say the least with icy cold conditions and slippery surfaces. Despite being younger than 30 years old at the time, Hannibal must have been a trusted leader and a man promising the rewards that should accompany a conquest of the Roman Republic. The procession continued despite the fact that it was apparent that not everybody would survive. Reports suggest that Hannibal's army had to actually rebuild some of the pass that had fallen into a state of damage. Another Gallic tribe called the Allobroges would have attacked the weakened and hungry Carthaginians during the crossing, but somehow Hannibal was able to overcome this. When Hannibal emerged on the eastern side of the Alps with a fraction of his original army, but according to some accounts with the same 37 elephants, some of the Gallic tribes felt that Hannibal was worth their respect and even worth standing alongside in the face of the Romans. It was now December of 218 BCE and Hannibal was successfully across the Alps 
and at the north of the Italian peninsula. It could be fair to say that the Romans were not expecting Hannibal to emerge from his alpine journey in any position to fight, but the Romans would know that they needed to deal with the Hannibal problem directly and sent a force under the command of the Roman consul Tiberius Sempronius Longus to engage Hannibal in a battle at the confluence of the Trebia and Po rivers. The ensuing battle is known as the Battle of the Trebia and the Roman naivety and underestimation of Hannibal allowed Hannibal to outwit the Romans and score a huge victory with more than half of the Roman army being lost to the Carthaginian alliance. Hannibal now had the Romans full attention. So this is the story of how Hannibal crossed the Alps, but Hannibal's intention when he set out wasn't to successfully cross the Alps in some test of endurance. The crossing was simply one part of a mission to invade and weaken the Roman Republic. So Hannibal had only just begun. There was no way that Hannibal could cause significant problems for the Romans without enticing local societies to join his cause, and he would have been relying on this fact. Hannibal's victories in the north of the peninsula, such as the Battle of the Trebia, opened up a doorway into the lands of the Republic itself. Hannibal could now campaign directly towards Rome itself, but initially he would need to negotiate the lands of Etruria, which were inhabited by Romanized Etruscans. So Hannibal would lead his army southwards until almost reaching Lake Trasimene in the summer of 217 BCE. The Roman army would be pursuing Hannibal, and Hannibal would be aware of this. So upon reaching the lake, Hannibal would light false campfires some distance away to fool the Romans into believing the location of the Carthaginian army was somewhere it wasn't. It was a trap, and in the misty conditions, as the Romans made their way along the northern edge of the lake, the Carthaginians appeared from the forests and ambushed their enemy. The Roman army was estimated to be about 30,000 strong. So it is quite a considerable thing that it was ambushed. It took almost four hours for the Carthaginians to destroy the Roman army. With their commander, the consul Gaius Flaminius, losing his own life in the process. The remaining Romans retreated and Carthaginians under the command of Hannibal were now scoring victories well within Roman territory. This was unthinkable just a couple of years earlier. Hannibal could have attacked Rome following his victory at Lake Trasimene, but instead he decided to rally up more willing allies from within the lands of the Roman Republic. So Hannibal headed south towards the lands of Magna Graecia, and the Romans stayed in hot pursuit. They did not want to give Hannibal any kind of opportunity to be able to settle anywhere within the Republic. Should Hannibal be allowed to settle, 
he may have created a power base in which he could start recruiting societies who believed that defecting to Hannibal would be advantageous, considering how formidable he appeared to be. The Romans frantically built up a brand new army force in order to take on the Carthaginians, and in 216 BCE, the two sides met again at Cannae. What happened at Cannae in the year 216 BCE would go down as the single most deadliest day in the history of European lands. Hannibal managed to sustain an army strength of around 50,000, but estimates of a Roman army number are thought to have been in excess of 85,000. The Romans had had enough of the Carthaginians and had decided to put an end to this problem once and for all. The Roman army was led by the two Roman consuls, Gaius Terentius Varro and Lucius Aemilius Paulus. What followed was one of the most astonishing days of the entire first millennium BCE. The huge Roman army attacked the Carthaginians. Once again, Hannibal demonstrated that he was a master tactician equal to the threat of the Romans. You could argue that Hannibal's tactical expertise was worth thousands of soldiers on its own. Hannibal's Carthaginian army, still made up from various ethnicities, would entice the Roman infantry to act down the centre of the army formations. When Hannibal would use his cavalry to push the Roman cavalry back into an ineffective position so that the Roman infantry could be surrounded and brutally massacred. Estimates of over 45,000 Roman soldiers were killed. Hannibal would have undoubtedly have made his father, Hamilcar Barca, incredibly proud. Hamilcar had always been defiant of the Romans and was too stubborn to negotiate the peace terms after the Carthaginian defeat at the end of the First Punic War. Now his own son had marched into Roman territory and given them a taste of their own medicine. And thanks to these amazing victories against the odds, Hannibal could now consider conquering the entire Roman Republic. Roman cities and provinces started defecting to Carthage, meaning that now Carthage had influence over a significant amount of territory on the Italian peninsula itself, including the very important city of Capua. Our final trip back uh, this week will be to two years ago where we were summarising uh, Volume 3 and the Classical World. And uh, we got the opportunity then to uh, look very quickly at why uh, the Macedonian uh, Empire uh, expanded so rapidly and then what happened in the aftermath. So we briefly spoke about the growth and the decline of the Macedonian Empire and uh, here it is. The city-states of Greece, such as Athens and Sparta, had been greatly weakened by their conflicts with each other in the Peloponnesian War, 
during the previous century, the 5th century BCE. And so neighbouring city-states and kingdoms no longer saw any necessity to see themselves as inferior to these once great entities and would be happy to stand up for themselves. One of the neighbouring territories gaining power to the north of the traditional Greek city-states was Macedon. And in the middle of the 4th century BCE, their king was Philip II. Philip II would approach the Greek polymath Aristotle to be a teacher to his son Alexander. Macedon became so powerful that Philip II would lead an army to victory over a coalition of Greek forces at the Battle of Chironia in 338 BCE. Alexander would accompany his father Philip on this campaign. When Philip died in 336 BCE, his son Alexander took his throne and would punish the Greeks for attempting to rise up against him. Alexander would then embark on a major campaign of conquest and he would target the Achaemenid Persians. The Achaemenid Persians were not as strong as they may have once been and Alexander III of Macedon would recognise an opportunity to capitalise on this. Alexander would defeat the Achaemenid Persians led by their ruler Darius III at Issus and then quickly moved to take control of the wealthy territory of Egypt in order to boost his resources and cement his supply lines. Alexander would then finish off the Achaemenid Persians at Galgamela and took all of the territory up to the Indian subcontinent, all within just a few years. This was an astonishing achievement which left us considering Alexander the Great as one of the greatest military generals of all time. The Achaemenid Persian Empire was now history. Many cities were founded or renamed in Alexander's honour, with the most famous of all being the great city of Alexandria in Egypt. It's interesting to speculate as to whether Alexander the Great ever encountered another great historical ruler when he reached his easternmost point, as these would have been the lands of the Indian subcontinent during the young life of Chandragupta Maurya. The lands of India had now developed considerably with many new settlements along the river systems founded by the Indic migrants who had spread into these lands following the disappearance of the Harappans a thousand years earlier. It would not be long after the premature death of Alexander the Great that Chandragupta Maurya established his own powerful empire within the Indian subcontinent. This was the Maurya Empire, the first great empire of India, established in and around the lands of the Ganges River, which was the same area of the world that the Buddha had achieved his enlightenment almost a couple of centuries previous. As for Alexander's new territories, they were thrown into chaos, with many of Alexander's great generals believing that they should have a share of the spoils, and so the territories of Alexander's empire were carved up between many individuals. But these individuals were certainly not all content with their share and subsequent councils and skirmishes took place in order to restore some kind of stability. The situation would take a number of decades to be resolved and this would be called the Age of the Diadochi, a Latin term for successors. Ptolemy Sota, 
would take control of Egypt and declare his independence from the rest of the remnants of Alexander's empire, leaving the lands of Macedon, Syria and Pergamum to sort out their own differences. Sir Lucas Nicator would take control of the lands of Mesopotamia and the vast expanse of territory eastwards up to the extent of the Moria Empire. This would be the new Seleucid Empire that would also expand their territory west to effectively replace what was the Achaemenid Persian Empire as the vast empire in the lands of the Near East. The entire balance of power of the lands in and around the Mediterranean Sea had changed. For some it was beneficial. The new Ptolemaic rulers in Egypt started to try to restore the former glory of these lands. A huge library was built in Alexandria, iconic of the continuation of Greek academia in Egyptian lands. Ptolemaic Egypt would also develop commercial bonds with other lands such as the island of Rhodes in order to stay one step ahead of its post-Macedonian empire rivals. And Rhodes would enjoy a period of prosperity that enabled them to build a huge statue by the entrance to its harbour that would be known as the Colossus of Rhodes, once again one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast, The History of the World magazine for the 10th of July 2023. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, uh, we that you can visit our website, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do so, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you qualify for all sorts of gifts and rewards. Now this week I have the great pleasure of welcoming into the History of the World podcast Illuminati Craig Sayer. Craig thank you so much for pledging to support the podcast and now if you want to have access to bonus material or you want to listen to the podcast ad free then you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify uh, just click the link in the uh, podcast description wherever you listen. And uh, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. 
Lynn Dowling wrote in and said, Dear Chris, thank you for my special episode on the history of Thailand. Uh, that was like running a marathon. I was super impressed. My brother recommended I read a certain book on Thailand's history, but I suppose it helped me to understand your podcast a lot better since I had time to pass out the pronunciation of the cities and kings you referred to. Um, I can't tell you how many times I had to look up the pronunciation of A-U-T-R, uh, and it just tripped lightly off your tongue. How do you do that? I don't even know if it's right, Lynn, to be quite honest with you. I just, I, I suppose I, I looked it up. Um, anyway, this was such a hard episode since Thailand's history is so inextricably tied to the region. China, India, Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Malaysia. Not to mention the colonial powers, you even covered the prehistoric period. What was most impressive, however, is how you succinctly and tactfully covered 20th century geopolitics and even the political scene of the 21st right up until the present day. I now understand why I have, why I have been so confused about current Thai events. They're complicated. Anyway, I know this might sound like an embarrassment of accolades, but you deserve them all. Your next special episode on the history of history promises to be just as difficult. The rest of us are trying to chill out over the summer months. Um, and here you are slaving away. We appreciate you, Chris. Thanks, uh, Lynn Dowling. Thank you, Lynn. Um, yes, well, Lynn, you, the reason why I wrote that episode is because you've been kind enough to support the podcast. So you deserve it, Lynn. And um, it's my pleasure to write it. And it was a very, very interesting subject. Um, little did I know that in uh, the Thai language, um, if I felt it was difficult um, with the Chinese language, um, trying to learn four types of tonality, I didn't realise that Thai, Thai language has five uh, types of tonality. And, um, and if you don't make an effort to pronounce things with the right tone, then it can turn out to be incorrect. But um, hopefully any listeners who are very uh very well versed in speaking Thai will afford me a bit of uh, a bit of sympathy with my attempts uh anyway my pleasure Lynn and uh, thank you for such an interesting subject Martin McPherson wrote in and said thanks for the podcast I was wondering if the flashcard memorization pages are still available one was on ancient art and another was on ancient writing thanks Martin um yeah sadly I forgot all about these um, the History of the World podcast used to have uh, Tiny Cards, um, which was a website that was um, created by Duolingo, the very famous uh, language learning app. And uh, they created a flashcard site, but um, unfortunately they, didn't, they wasn't able to sustain it really. So um, unfortunately um, it did go out of commission in 2020 so alongside the history of the world podcast flashcards so we lost them unfortunately and i've i've never really considered um considered doing it again but maybe maybe there is something that we can do in the future but i've I've not really thought about it mine but interesting because i'd forgotten all about them now lynn uh mentioned lynn dowling mentioned that uh, i was in currently trying to write an episode um, for History of the World podcast member Diane Timmerman um, about um, 
the history of history, otherwise um, called his, uh, historiography. So I'm writing an episode now about historiography, but it will be a completely different angle of of writing from my perspective. So it really goes back to the art of writing about history and um, how uh, history writers um, have influenced uh, how what we what we consider to be our history. So, of course, none of us were there. We have to rely on the writings of others and we have to trust that they were being honest and impartial, which is pretty much impossible. So we'll be investigating the history of history writing and what that can tell us about um, you know, how we look at history today. Anyway, that's for the next episode. Um, we'll have to wait and see whether it will be presented next week or the week after, I'm not sure at this moment in time. But then, once we've done that, we'll be getting back into Volume 4, so we'll be able to resume the stories of Volume 4 and travel deep into Asia and look at some of the fascinating medieval Asian cultures. I can't wait for that. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and until next time, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.